Amen. You may be seated. And our Old Testament reading and text will be Psalm 2. And then our New Testament reading is found in the book of the Revelation to John, chapter 19, where we'll be reading verses 11 through 16. I said the Revelation to John. Yeah. Yeah, the book of the Revelation to John, 19, verses 11 through 16. So first of all, Psalm 2, our Old Testament reading and text. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And then our New Testament reading from Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. His clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word read where we see both in the Old Testament and the New, uh, the resurrected and exalted Lord Jesus Christ in in all of his glory and sovereign might. Yet, Lord, we also see in in our Lord a Savior as eyes of compassion for us. Father, illumine these words by your Holy Spirit to our hearts and to our minds and and grant unction of the Holy Spirit to your servant in the preaching of the gospel that your people may hear and be edified. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Well, I was a little embarrassed last time I was here to learn, and Jake was the one that informed me, and I commend him for remembering something, that I had preached Psalm 1 here before at Peninsula Reformed Presbyterian Church. When he said, I've heard you preach that, I assumed it was at Reformation Church in Virginia Beach before we began this work here, but I went back and looked, and Jake was right. Three years ago, in June in 2019, I preached Psalm 1. Now, a little meaning to my madness in what I'm doing right now is knowing that that uh, that our brother uh, Matt and his wife were wrestling uh, before the Lord about whether they sensed God calling him here and anticipating that the answer to that would be yes because our committee was convinced the Lord was calling them here. How many more Sundays am I going to have with you, you see, before his arrival where I'm coming on a regular basis? And we finished that study of Philippians uh, took a, a, a bit of a break at, uh, at Easter time um, or, or, or following that. But, but now it's time for me to get into another series. So, so what do I do uh, when, when I don't know how many weeks I'm going to have, how many opportunities I'm going to have to preach? And so I thought I'll go back to the Psalter, which you know that I love anyway, <clears throat> and pick out some Psalms that I've not preached here. And when I looked, I didn't see, I don't think I went back quite far enough to find that I had indeed preached Psalm 1 here three years ago. And lo and behold, Psalm 2, the next time that I was here. And so I have a dilemma. <clears throat> do I do this twice? That is, repeat or not? And I decided, yes, I'm going to do it twice. And then going forward, I will try to pick psalms that I haven't expounded before you hear. Uh, but the reasons for that are, there's a number of different reasons for going ahead and sticking to the plan as I set it out. One is, is to bring together this Torah, uh, Messiah uh, coupling that we see in Psalm 1 and 2. Again, we see that coupling in 18 and 19, and then again in 118 and 119. It's strategic places in the Psalter. This law and gospel influence right together at these locations with the Psalter. And to, to tie that together here by coming back with Psalm 2. <clears throat> the second thing is it's been three years. And that's a long time. It's a long time so that something comes back. Even if some of you have heard it, it can still be a bit fresh. And my sermons are never the same anyway. When I preach psalms, there are always differences that are there. And, and then third, some of you weren't here three years ago. And so you've not had the opportunity to hear uh, these particular psalms expounded. <clears throat> And so for that reason, I said, no, I'm going to stick to my guns because one and two. Then I'm going to try to be more careful in selecting psalms as we work our way uh, through the summer now in anticipation of Matthew's coming to be our organizing pastor. One of the things I want to do as we work through these is to spend a little bit of time answering the question, why is this psalm where it is in the Psalter? This is something that's gripped me, and I would commend uh, the study of the flow and arrangement.
of the Psalms, Dr. Opheimer Robertson's book is a watershed book on the subject. It will help you immensely in terms of the scaffolding of the Psalter and how to remember what Psalm is where and why it is where it is. Um, and I'm going to be teaching a course in that. I think I may have said this last time, beginning, I think, on Thursday night, June 23rd, for five consecutive Thursday nights. I've still not clarified whether it's going to be uh, live-streamed and offered online or simply the lectures will be recorded or, or either of those. But if they are, and if someone's interested, I'll, I'll get you information uh, about that. There are long lectures from 6.30 till about 10 o'clock <laughs> over, over a five-week period. And then if somebody wants to write the papers and take the final exam, if you just want to do it, you can do that as well um, in, the, in the flow and the arrangement of the Psalms <clears throat> in the Psalter. But what we see with 1 and 2 is not only this Torah-Messiah coupling, but we also see the introduction to Book 1 of the Psalter, which is 1 to 41. Remember, the Psalter is divided into five books. 1 to 41 is Book 1 of the Psalter. And and one reason that we can see this is when you come to, to, to Psalm 3, you have a title. It's a psalm of David at a particular time in his life. As you read through the rest of book one, every psalm has a title except for one place where two psalms were originally one psalm, and there's not a title after that second psalm. And so all of these psalms are psalms that David wrote himself from 3 through 41 without question. And most, including me, believe that David also wrote Psalms 1 and 2. So 1 and 2 introduce book 1. But more than that, 1 and 2 introduce the whole of the Psalter. This is the entranceway. Dr. Robertson says they're the two pillars or columns at the doorpost of the sanctuary or the temple that is the Psalter. And so as you're entering in, you have these two colossal pillars. Last time when I was here, I tried to demonstrate to you that implicitly Christ is found not only in the Messianic Psalms, but Christ is found in the Torah Psalms, the Law Psalms. Who is the blessed man that's being described in Psalm 1? Recognizing that the Westminster Divines are correct about what is required of those that are made in the image of God, which is personal perfect and perpetual obedience to God's law. And none of us measure up to that. We don't come close to measuring up to that any day of our lives. And so how can we be the blessed man of someone? We can't in our own right. So who is the blessed man? Well, it's Christ. And we're the blessed man because we are hid in Christ Jesus. And in God's saving work in us, he's actually forming Christ in us to more and more walking in obedience to glorify his name. So I preach Psalm 1 in order to show you that in the word of God, law is not absent of gospel, nor gospel absent of law. You can't understand the gospel without understanding law. How can you understand the good news of forgiveness of sin if you don't know what sin is? 
And you don't know your condition according to the flesh. The way that you are born in this world is descendants of Adam because of original sin and the guilt that you have. How do you have the good news of forgiveness if you don't understand law, you see? And so God gives us law to show us his righteousness but also our sin. And as we saw last time, as a tutor to point us to our need of a Savior. And as Paul tells us, that Savior's name is Jesus Christ, the blessed man of Psalm 1 who died in our place. So now we come to Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, Christ is explicit in the text. Not implicit, but explicit in the text. This psalm is Christological from beginning to end. I often wonder, what is the greatest of the Psalms in terms of substance? And typically, I go back and forth between two. Psalm 132, it's a glorious, glorious Psalm, also about Christ Jesus. Psalm 132 and Psalm 2. Today, the greatest of them is Psalm 2. Why? Because that's the one that we have open in front of us. This is an extraordinary glorious psalm that exalts the ascended reigning Christ Jesus. And I want you to get lost in his glory as we look at this psalm. First of all, we're going to see the stage of history here on the earth. The stage is the earth. What does it look like here? Then we're going to look at the stage of eternity. That is, what does it look like from heaven? So in 1 to 3, we're going to see the stage on the earth. And then in 4 to 9, we're going to see the stage in eternity, what's happened and happening in heaven. And then at the end, there's a gospel call. There's a call to grace, uh, to come to Christ, to surrender to him, to bow the knee to King Jesus. And so that's the way this psalm will break down. First of all, the stage of history the roar of the nations and the psalmist is just and I think it's David is just utterly perplexed just dumbfounded why he asked the question why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain why would people do what they do Why does mankind act the way it does? Do they really think they're going to get away with it? And of course, apart from grace, you're part of these nations that are roaring in rebellion against God. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That is, their plotting is hopeless. It's going to come to ruin. They cannot succeed. But what are they plotting? Against whom are they plotting? Look at the text. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord, against Yahweh, against the one true God. The kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth, they roar, they take counsel against Yahweh, And against his anointed, his Mashiach, and in the ESV, anointed is capitalized in order for us to realize this is not talking about David. David can in no way fulfill Psalm 2, nor the promises that are made to the king, 
They transcend David to David's greater son. The anointed here is the Messiah himself. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So right here in the second Psalm, way back in the Old Testament, probably written by David himself, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do the nations rage? Why do the kings of the earth, why do the rulers of the earth take counsel against Yahweh and against his Messiah? And look at what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is what the nations are saying about and to God and to his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's burst the cords. Let's tear them away. Let's tear the bonds away. We want to be at liberty. We don't need God. We don't need to submit ourselves to God. This is what they are raging. This is what they're plotting. Actually, the the overthrow of God himself. Can you imagine that? And you see why the psalmist is so perplexed. Why would they do such a thing? In, In light of the majesty of God himself. And of course, we also know in light of the mercy of God that's offered to sinners. Why would we continue even in such behavior? And yet that's what rebellion against God is. That's what sin is. It's rebellion against God. It's casting off his cords. It's saying, I'll be my own sovereign. I'll be my own king. I can't help but think about when I read this text in the Old Testament, when we think about prior to the flood and the multiplication of of wickedness and unrighteousness on the earth, it manifested itself in in, in nation against nation, in warfare and in violence. And of course, God saved Noah and his family in the ark, which is a, a theocracy in itself. It's how he saved them. But the, the, stud, the, the story of the flood is not simply about the salvation of Noah and his family who are elect in God, but it is about judgment upon the rest of the world and the flood that comes down upon them. But then following the flood, God tells them to multiply and to spread and to fill the earth again, just like he told Adam and Eve in the beginning. But they don't do that. They multiply, but what do they do? They gather together at Babel, and they say, we'll make a name for ourselves. We'll build a tower. We'll build a ziggurat to heaven. We don't need God to come down to us. No, we'll ascend in our own name and our own strength. Remember that account? And God came down from heaven and confused their languages in judgment and also in common grace so that their evil wouldn't be multiplied in their union and their wickedness and disperse them over the earth. Well, as we move from the scene upon the earth to the scene in heaven, I want you to keep in mind that Tower of Babel Uh, scene that we have. Look at verse 4. Here's God's response to the rebellion of men. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He laughs at them. The psalmist says, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot empty and vain things? 
if they only knew, if they could pull back the curtain, if they could see what's going on in heaven, they would see God laughing at their antics. Think again about the Tower of Babel. We don't need you. We'll ascend to heaven in our own strength, in our own name, and they're building this tower. Have you ever seen ant hills? You know how busy ants are. You know how industrious they are. It's really quite remarkable what they're able to do. But 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 you're a human. They're ants. You can you can step on an ant and you can smush it like that. Don't try it with fire ants. Okay. I don't know that you can smush fire ants. Thankfully, where I live, there are no fire ants. Are there fire ants? This I don't think they are. Are, are there some here? Okay, because they've moved from the south and they've moved up in this direction. That's the way God sees the antics of men and of kings and of rulers and wanting to throw off his cords and his bonds in order to unseat his sovereignty and to establish themselves. He laughs at them and holds them in derision. Now, the Bible speaks about different kinds of laughter. There's the laughter of doubt. Remember Sarah when she's in the tent and when the angel of the Lord and the other two men come and they're talking with Abraham and they tell Abraham a year from now your wife is going to bear you a son. What did she do? She laughed. And if you read earlier in the text, Abraham laughed at the same notion as they got old. That's the laughter of doubt. But then she gets pregnant, and Isaac is born, and what do they name him? Well, they name him Isaac, but it means laughter. He laughs. But here the laughter is that deep-seated joy, the laughter of a promise by God fulfilled in the son of promise that is Isaac. Different kinds of laughter. Here we have the laughter of derision. God laughs at the antics of men who would dare raise the fist against him from heaven. Just like those little ants might say, don't you try to step on our mound. (laughs) Only God is eminently more immense over us than we are over an anthill. You see why the psalmist is so perplexed Why would they do such thing? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, and there it's Adonai, the great, it's his title. Before it's Yahweh. Here it's Adonai. Yahweh, who is Lord, who is Adonai, holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. The God who laughs from heaven angry towards fallen mankind and he speaks to them and it stirs their terror or it ought to and one day it will as he speaks to them in fury listen to what he says that causes them terror he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying as for me I have said my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
This should strike fear in every king, every president, every prime minister on the face of the earth. That God has set his king on his hill of Zion. And he's not talking anymore about this hill that's in the Middle East, in this particular place that's called Zion, where David built his city, Jerusalem, and built his palace, where later Solomon would build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. That is but a picture. It's a facsimile of heaven itself, of Mount Zion that is above. He's speaking here of the exaltation of his son in resurrection and in ascension and in session at the right hand of God. And if the kings of the earth knew who was sitting on the throne in heaven, if they could see, they would tremble in terror before him. This is what God has declared. I want you to recognize here This is the mighty God that we serve. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And not this one on earth, but that one in heaven. And the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not about David. David's a type and a shadow. Yes, he is Messiah. He is Mashiach, he is anointed one. The kings are the anointed ones. But we're talking now about the Mashiach, the Messiah, with a capital M. We're talking about David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see, really, a shift in voice that's taking place in the psalm. Still the scene is in heaven. It's what God is declaring to his son but this, the son himself will be speaking after the father speaks to him. Look at what he says. I will tell you the decree. The Lord said to me. You see the son is speaking. He's telling us what the father said to him. You are my son. In other words, the anointed one, the Messiah that he mentions earlier, he now designates as his son. The anointed one is his son. This is what the Father says to the Son. Yahweh said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Now, that can be a troubling passage, especially in light of our theology. When we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity and the three persons of the Godhead, and their personal properties and relationship to each other eternally. You remember your theology. Think about it. Remember how how they're designated. You know, the the, the Father is, is not begotten, nor does he proceed from any. The Son eternally proceeds from the Father, or eternally is generated from the Father. The Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's how we formulate the doctrine of the Trinity. We talk about the eternal begottenness of the Son. He is eternally generated by the Father. It doesn't mean he's coming into existence eternally, not the way we understand normal generation, but it's the biblical language that's used for the relationship of Father to Son. And we in theology supply that modifier, eternal, eternally generated by the Father. 
in order for us to recognize that this is the interpersonal existence of God from before time between the three persons of Godhead and between the Father and the Son. Eternal generation is the theology. And yet this word is today. Today I have begotten thee. And so the question is, is the Son eternally begotten of the Father, as we say in theology, or is there a particular time when the Son is generated by the Father, God has begotten him, as signified in the word today? And this can be a perplexing thing when you think about it. Well, I think the answer to this question is yes, the theologians are correct because the, the Bible talks about this relationship between father and son in terms of begottenness. It's an eternal relationship. And so we add that qualifier, eternally generated of the father, the eternal begottenness of the son. That is correct when you're talking about God in terms of his eternal existence One God in three persons, the relationship between Father and Son. And we have to take our stand there. And yet I think what this text is saying is that God's Son is doubly His Son. He's His Son eternally, has always been. The Father's always been Father to the Son. The Son's always been Son to the Father from all eternity. In the being of God. But now, in light of his work, his incarnation. But more importantly, his life of obedience, his death. We obeyed the Father in death. In light of that obedience, that perfect obedience to the Father, even death on the cross. Philippians 2, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name which is above every name. And so he's eternally begotten of the Father, and yet in light of his work, we call that the economy, the the work of the three persons of the Godhead in creation and in redemption. The Son obeys the Father thing. And culminating in the death on the cross. And because of that obedient, God gives him the name which is above every name. Because of that obedient, God says, you're doubly my son. You always have been. That hasn't changed. But now in light of your obedience and your work, in light of the cross, today I have begotten you. Everything that's mine is yours. It already was. But now it's doubly his because of his work. Today I have begotten you. And then look at what the Father says to him. And and you, you, you you can see this shift that's taking place. The Father says to the Son, ask of me whatever you want. Because you were obedient even to death on the cross. Ask for me whatever you want. It's yours. Ask of me. 
and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Ask of me. The nations are yours. Ask of me. I will give you a rod of iron to rule the nations. You remember when Jesus was being tempted by, the, by, uh, by Satan in the wilderness. Remember what Satan said? Took him to a high place and said, look at all the kingdoms of the earth. They're yours. I'll give them to you. You can have them all. Just bow down and worship me. That's all you have to do. What was he saying? Bow down and worship me. I'll give you these. You don't have to go to the cross to get them. You can bypass the cross. And the Lord Jesus Christ does what? He rebukes the devil. He rebukes him with the word of God. And he sets his face to obey the Father even to death, death on the cross. And because of that, now God has exalted him to the highest place, to his right hand. He's given him the name which is above every name, that name of Lord. He said to him, ask of me, I will give you the nations as your inheritance, and you will judge them with a rod of iron. And now he sits at the right hand of God, the Father, on that heavenly Mount Zion. But a rod of iron in his hand, he's king of kings and he's lord of lords. And if the kings of the earth only knew, if they were not so blinded to what God has done in his son, and the day will come when he'll not be hidden from their presence. The day will come when he again in the clouds of glory. And when they see him coming, they will run into caves and they will crowd to the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb who is coming from heaven. That day is coming. You need to recognize, Christian, the Christ that we serve is exalted to the right hand of God and kings of the earth and presidents and prime ministers who are wise fall down before him. And those who don't will face his judgment and he comes with a rod and he dashes into pieces. You may wonder, <laughs> how does this text fit with the Sunday school lesson that we had this morning? which speaks of the compassions of the Savior, the love of the Savior. Here's what you know about this. This king that we read about in this text, this one who has a rod of iron to judge the nations and to dash them into pieces, he's the one who loves you. He's the one who's your Savior. He's the one who's compassionate to sinners. He's the one who couldn't love you. He's the one, that supreme work that the Father is honoring him with the name which is above every name. 
Where the Father says, today I have begotten thee because of this act of obedience was a work to redeem your soul from hell when he died on the cross in the place of sinners. The point here, yes, we must stress the mercies and the grace and even the pity and the compassion of our Savior. But the one who is merciful and gracious and pities us and is compassionate towards us is this exalted king. He is a strong savior, you see. He is able to save to the uttermost. His enemies will be under his feet, Psalm 110. Even the serpent whose head he's crushed in the cross and in the resurrection. That's the Savior that we serve. So, so why are we fearful when we see the nations raging <laughs> all about us? And it is there. It's more stark in our culture today than it's been in the history of our nation. Let's cast his cords off of us. His cords of what he says about about sexual morality and ethics. Let's cast them off. That's what's happened in our culture today. Let's tear them off. Now what he says is an abomination, we say is righteousness. That's where we live today. But it's always been that way since the fall. There's nothing new under the sun. It's not time for hand-wringing. It's time for faith in this exalted Savior. Now let's look at the call of grace. I'll tell you a little story. Many years ago, before I became regional missionary um, and was pastor of the church that's now in Chilhowee, Virginia, I had a dear friend who was a Baptist minister. And uh, he, was, he was a wicked man in his early adulthood, was profoundly converted um, in some Baptist revival service or something. And he didn't find anybody reaching people that were like him. So he became a minister and he planted his own church. And most of the people in his church came to faith through his ministry. We didn't agree on doctrine in some points. I always said, he's an Arminian who leads, leans strongly towards grace. That's what I told him. But he loved the kingdom. And when we started the church, this Providence Presbyterian Church, I'll never forget, we started out in a log cabin at Emory and Henry College, Tobias Smith Cabin, for six weeks, but we couldn't stay there long. We needed a location. We didn't know where we were going to meet. And he called me up and he says, I'm coming by your house to pick you up. I want to show you something. And he took me to this metal building in Meadowview, Virginia, right off of the interstate. He said, when I was a center, I had a hardware store in this building right here. This is where you need to plant your church, in this building right here. And his church was around the corner. He didn't care that we were going to be around the corner. He cared about the kingdom. He was a godly man, dear, dear friend. We rented that building. We were in it for seven years. 
before the Lord gave us the building that's now in Chilhowee. Well, we bought it, but the Lord provided it, provided the means to get the building that's in in Chilhowee, Virginia. Anyway, he called me up probably a couple of years later, and he said, I bought a tent. I said, you did? He said, yeah, we bought a tent. We're going to have a tent revival. We're going to pitch the tent in front of the church. And I'm sitting there thinking, can't you have the revival in the church building? But there's just something about sawdust and tents. And I and he said, I want you to come preach one night. And I said, uh, you do? He said, yeah, I'm getting different ministers. I want you to come preach at the tent revival. And I said, okay, under one condition. I said, I'm not going to give an altar call. He said, you don't have to worry about that. Don't do an altar call. That's perfectly fine. I just want you to come and preach. So I came to preach. What was my text? Psalm 2. <laughs> there is a gospel call in this, but it's not the hand-wringing kind of God up in heaven saying, time after time I've waited before, and now I'm waiting again. This is what we used to sing. To see if you're willing to open the door. Oh, won't you please let me in? I can't do anything about it. Of course, the altar call invented by Charles Finney is based upon this kind of theology. He said, you don't have to worry about it. So I preach Psalm 2, and I come down to the end of this psalm. We're going to see the gospel call here. And I said, I don't want anybody to come down to the front here. If the Lord's working in your heart, you need to go, like Spurgeon said, because he was a Baptist, throw yourself on your bed and cry out to God for mercy. And as soon as I finished, I had a closing prayer. I stepped down, and the minister stepped up, my dear friend, and the singer stepped up, and they gave an altar call. <laughs> and same song, song about two, you know, a man, a, a, a man who's at the altar, and he sees his grandson at the altar, and this mushy kind of stuff. And 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 I'm sitting there praying, Lord, don't let anybody go forward. <laughs> And so this Presbyterian minister killed the tent revival. Nobody went forward uh, at that at that particular invitation. Uh, but um, and we laugh, he and I laughed about it afterwards. He he did it because it was expected, not because it was really his conviction <coughs> as well. But I I can't think about this text without thinking about about that particular experience. But there is a call here. It's not the call of some impotent Savior that's just waiting for you to make a decision for him. No, it's this sovereign king who has been set at the right hand of God the Father. He's the one who's issuing the call. And so listen to the call, a call of grace. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. It's time for you to wise up, kings. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Notice who he addresses here first. The kings and the rulers of the earth, the mighty kings of the land. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. You hear that? Serve him with fear. Rejoice, because if you do bow the knee, it will be a time for rejoicing. Rejoice with trembling. And then we have these words, kiss the sun. This is not the kiss that you see on the tarmac when two kings from two countries 
meet on the tarmac when one flies in and they go up and you see they kiss each other on on both cheeks where they're recognizing that individual sovereignty of each other is peers. That is not this kiss. This is get down on your knees and kiss the signet ring of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a call to total surrender to him. You fall down prostrate before him. Listen to it. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Like the King James Version when his wrath is kindled just a little bit. It's the end of you. See that was the invitation I gave in the tent revival. Fall on your face before this king in total surrender. President Biden, President Putin, President Xi, you better wise up. Or whoever's in the White House, you better wise up. You better fall on your face before this king and kiss his ring. Because when his wrath is kindled just a little bit, it is your ruin. That's the king we serve. Then listen to how the psalm ends. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. He's saying, get on your knees and utter absolute, total surrender. And as we get ready to get on our knees and we look up at this risen, ascended, exalted Lord Jesus Christ, you look at his face, you see eyes of compassion that say, I bled and died for you. Come here. And you run his arms and he holds you he takes you to himself blessed are all those who take refuge in him instead of running away and hiding run to him and if you go and say but my sin my sin he said I died for every one of them I've washed them all away It's all of grace. And that is the gospel call. Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Have you kissed his ring? Have you looked up? And have you run into his arms as your Savior? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for this powerful word from this psalm of a strong Savior. But oh, what a Savior of grace and mercy, of compassion and pity. Thank you 
Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.